Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspectives on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is Maximizing Your Alpha Using Beta One Strategies and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm John Sherman, co-head of the U.S. Equity Client Portfolio Management Team at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And with me today is Susan Bao, a portfolio manager of our large-cap tax-aware and large-cap core 13030 strategies in the U.S. Equity Group at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Joining Susan are Scott Davis, who's also a portfolio manager. He runs our large-cap core strategy within our U.S. Equity Group at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, and Ralph Zingone, who is a portfolio manager who runs our U.S. Discipline Equity team here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. This should be fun. The U.S. equity market, as represented by the S&P 500, has gained 265% since the market bottomed in March of 2009. Market strength has been driven by beta, as the price-to-earnings multiple has expanded from 10.5 times in 2009 to 17.7 times today. Said differently, all boats rose with the tide. At 17.7 times earnings, the market is approximately 10% above its 25-year average of 16 times earnings. We would expect the market is likely to be more discerning and be driven by fundamentals and earnings. We believe that we're moving into an environment where correlations are lower and dispersion is higher, which is a positive trend for active stock pickers. This is exactly what has played out so far in 2017. Today, we're going to start high level and discuss beta one investing, the different forms of beta one investing, and we'll provide some examples of how beta one has evolved. Finally, we'll discuss our current views as beta one investors. Ralph, why don't you introduce the concept of Beta One Investing? Sure. I think a good place to start is to describe what Beta itself is. Beta is a measure of volatility versus the overall market. And usually when you're talking about the market, you're thinking of diverse index of stocks like the S&P 500 or the Russell 3000. And so what Beta represents is a stock's variability versus that market. So stocks that have Betas higher than one are usually more volatile than the market, and stocks that have betas less than one are less volatile. And you can apply the same concept to a portfolio. So when you think about beta one investing, beta one portfolios tend to behave like the market in its volatility. Portfolios that have betas less than one tend to be less volatile than the market. And of course, portfolios with betas greater than one tend to have more risk. Are all passive funds and ETFs beta one? You know, it depends. Traditional market cap weighted indices, ETFs like the Spider, that track the S&P 500 are beta one. And basically what they're trying to do is replicate the market minus fees. And I'm sure we're going to get into it, but as beta one investors, you know, we're not trying to time the market. We're trying to outperform it. So it's not a question of replicating. It's a question of outperforming. Susan, give me some examples of beta one products. Beta one managers come in all shapes and size. Some are fundamental. Others are quants. Some managers are bottoms up, while others are top-down macro. Some managers focus on stocks with high growth rate or cheaper valuations, while others are more style neutral. Some managers like Scott and Ralph here are long only. Others are long short or 130-30. In the end, most active managers' goal is to beat a benchmark. Susan, I think you hit a good point. And the other thing that has a common denominator amongst us is we're all bottoms up, 
yes, it's important to stay focused on the macro to understand the environment that you're operating in, but it's really from the bottoms up. And one thing in common for all three of us is we're all style agnostic, the definition of core. So we believe that markets and benchmarks, like the S&P 500 themselves, can be inefficient. If you think about what a cap-weighted benchmark is, it's a benchmark that has made up its portfolio based on the market cap of a company. And that can create some inefficiencies. There's nothing that says a stock who has an index weight of 3% is any better or worse than a stock whose index weight may be 10 basis points. And it's those differences that allow an active manager to make relative decisions versus those stock weights. If I know you agree, but another way that we tend to think about it is the index is yesterday's winners that may or may not be the winners for tomorrow. So one example, just to pick one of many, is if you look in the energy sector, Exxon is 160 basis points of the S&P 500. And is that going to be the winner of the future? Whereas if you look at our top four shale investments, they're only about 40 basis points. So one fourth the size of Exxon and yet more attractive, better growth, and are going to have similar volume of oil in just a few years. So that's an example of a winner tomorrow as compared to Exxon being a winner of the past. So you, Scott, as an active manager would then, the way you position for that is you would have a less weight in Exxon if you had any at all, and again, own more of those shale investments. And so you can make those relative decisions. And ultimately, when you're right, or if you're right, add value for clients. Yeah, and that's a really good point, Ralph. And it gets to the spectrum of risk that each of our products represents while still using the same fundamental research, because I can not own Exxon and use those funds to overinvest and have overweights in the names that we think are much more attractive, but that's the most I can do, whereas Susan can go one step further. As stated before, not all Beta 1 managers are the same. To outperform a benchmark, managers take varying forms of risk, which is measured as tracking error versus the benchmark. Ralph, maybe you could explain what tracking error is. Tracking error is basically, it's a measure of how closely your portfolio tracks the benchmark you're trying to beat. And it's a measure of volatility. So lower tracking error managers tend to have less variability of their returns around the benchmark that they're managing to. Higher tracking error strategies have a greater variability around the benchmark. And generally, your tracking error is a function of the type of relative positions that you take. If you have very narrow conviction in a few names, you're going to be more concentrated. You're going to look less like the benchmark. And if you have a portfolio where you're trying to control different types of risks, you'll tend to have more diversification. In general, your tracking errors will be lower. I think it's a great segue into what all of you do. You're all active managers, but you fall at different points in the risk spectrum versus the S&P 500 index. We described you all as being core managers earlier and being style agnostic. Ralph, your products offer the lowest tracking error, which means that they're most similar to the benchmark, but yet you're still trying to generate some excess return for investors. Maybe talk a little bit about what you do to control risk but also to deliver returns for investors. What we're trying to do is to outperform the index like any other active manager, but we want to do that consistently. And if you can outperform the benchmark and do that consistently, you're going to create a pretty compelling alternative to pure passive investing. And that's what we want to deliver to our clients. It's effectively alpha with consistency. In order to beat that passive alternative, our fund needs to look very much like the index on a macro level, but we want to capture our research advantage in understanding companies and valuing them properly in our stock selection. On sector weightings and style tilts, we look very much like the benchmark. And what you consider a style tilt is something like growth versus value or large versus small. 
our exposures there closely mirror what that of the S&P 500 is. So we take very little risk in those dimensions, and that allows us to free up risk to select stocks. Our fundamental advantage is to pick stocks within sectors, and that's where we want to play to our strengths. Since we're not taking sector and style risk, and we're diversifying on the micro level, you end up with a portfolio with low tracking error, but a singular focus on adding value through stock selection. Alpha with consistency is our objective. And again, we want that alpha to come from the research advantage and to closely track the benchmark that our clients have already selected. That's probably a good transition for me, Ralph, because, I mean, you and I share a lot of commonalities in the sense that it's all about the fundamental research from the bottoms up to get that stock selection into our portfolios. And when I look at the alpha that we have delivered and intend to deliver to clients going forward, it's really about 75% is coming from stock selection within the sectors. But if you loosen the constraint where I'm still beta one, but I have a little more tracking error than you because I'm not exactly the same as the S&P because I can also overweight or underweight certain sectors that feel expensive or an opportunity, that is another way for me to add alpha while taking a little more tracking error risk. Scott, you were given the example of ExxonMobil earlier, and your view was that there were other stocks that you preferred versus it. Do you own ExxonMobil in your portfolio? No, that's a good question. The answer is no, I don't, because one of the other ways that I can increase my tracking error and hopefully alpha, when there's insight, when there's conviction, and when there's a valuation signal coming from our analysts, I can put that in the portfolio. And the way to put that in the portfolio is to not be underweight Exxon, but to own zero and have that much more capacity to own the names that we think are more attractive. So it's a way of managing risk because you still have to do that across the portfolio holistically. But when we have that real insight, conviction, and evaluation signal, we want to take advantage of it in our portfolio. In our portfolios, we own some Exxon. And the reason we own that is it's a big weight in the index. And we limit our index weightings to have a range around the benchmark. In Exxon's case, it is a a stock that we fundamentally think is expensive, and we are overweight many of the names Scott has mentioned. But we understand that a relative weight in Exxon brings its own risk. So we may choose to diversify away some of that risk in names like it, maybe like a Chevron. Or we may, as in our case, choose to have less of an underweight than completely being out of it. And that helps us to control risk, and it helps us to control some of the style tilts that we also want to control in the portfolio. Susan, so far we've talked about long-only managers, but you run a portfolio which also enables you to short. Maybe you talk a little bit about the 130-30 concept, how it came to be, and what you're trying to do in that portfolio. In the long-only portfolio, when we walked in in the morning, we picked stocks that look cheap. But back in 2004, we took a step back and took a look at our investment process. We realized that since 1987, which was when our process started, our investment process has been doing a great job of identifying expensive stocks just as effective as identifying cheap stocks. So that was a starting point of 130-30 strategy. So you may ask me, what exactly is 130-30 strategy? 130-30 strategy is a strategy, imagine you give me $100, I take $100, purchase the stocks we think that are very attractive based on our valuation model. Then I sell short of $30 of the stocks we think that are going to underperform and take the proceeds, reinvest that into the stocks that are cheap within each sector. 
So instead of having only $100 working for you, you have $160 working for you. You have $160 of effective capital that have leverage to our competitive information advantage. So that's a much more efficient way of utilizing your capital. That's the concept of 130-30 strategy. And so in a way, like you can supercharge the fundamental insight from our analysts. So when I mentioned earlier, the best I can do is not own that 160 basis points of Exxon, you can go one step further. Absolutely true. In a 130-30 strategy, in theory, if you think the Permian stocks can outperform Exxon over time, you could, in theory, build a position by long a basket of Permian stocks and short Exxon. Since you're leveraging the insights of our analysts and putting $160 of capital to work, can you explain to people how that still remains a beta one portfolio? That's a really good question. The way we run 130-30 strategy is imagine you're running a 100% long-only strategy. Then you overlay that with a 30-30 market neutral strategy. Given the 30-30 portion is completely market neutral, you will end up only with 100% exposure to the market. As a result, you're getting a beta one portfolio. And the goal of a 130-30 strategy is to utilize your tracking error more efficiently? That's correct. I'm a big believer of diversification. In 130-30 strategy, given you have 160% exposure to your fundamental research, given you have a 30-30 extension portion on top of the regular long-only strategy, you end up with a more diversified portfolio. You have more stocks in your portfolio. So as a result, you're able to generate incremental alpha without adding a lot of incremental risk, which means your information ratio can potentially end up higher. If you think about our belief system as fundamental managers, it's a basic premise, which is a stock should reflect its future cash flows. So that gets to the future. That gets to research and the importance of it, which is really the heart of what we do. Because if we're better than most as our analysts at predicting those future cash flows, then we can take advantage of mispricings in the market. One of the competitive advantages that we have is an information advantage that comes from our analysts who have typically covered their industries for two decades, have been at the firm for typically over a decade. And that gives us a real, not just information advantage, but judgment advantage. One of the advantages of following so many companies and having done it for as long as we have is you have a view on stocks. And if you can fundamentally capture everyone's view, you can end up ranking those stocks And that's something we've done for almost 30 years. If you can rank stocks from attractive to least attractive, it allows you to do a lot of things. It allows you to figure out which stocks you want to overweight and it allows you to determine which stocks you want to underweight. And if you're running a 130-30 portfolio like Susan, it creates a natural short pool of stocks for those types of strategies. We talk about the benchmark being inefficient. We gave some examples of Exxon versus some smaller stocks in the benchmark, underweight Exxon, overweight some of the smaller stocks in the benchmark. But maybe if you could just lend a little bit more color as it relates to the inefficiency of the market from a portfolio construction perspective and how you exploit that. Take one of the retailers as an example. We think it's going to be Amazon over time, but the stock has only two basis point weight in S&P. In the long-only strategies, the best you can do 
is to avoid that stock. In the 130-30 strategy, we can take a 30 basis point position. If the stock were to go down by 30%, you just made almost 10 basis point for your clients. And that's really the difference between Ralph and I versus what your strategy has enabled. And to keep beta one, Susan, you're buying other retailers on the other side. That's absolutely true. The key here is within retail sector, utilizing your bottom-up research, identify the companies who are better positioned than the companies who will be more challenged in the new brief Amazon world. That's a really interesting example that you brought up, Susan, because what you're describing when you say Amazonable, which I didn't realize was a word, but it's a good one, is you're talking about structural change. And when you think about e-commerce and the implications of that, that is what our analysts are focused on in that sector. And that's not an easy thing to get right because everyone knows the direction of change. The question is not the direction. The question is the magnitude. And that gets to what the cash flows are going to look like. And that gets to what the market is pricing in and a potential mispricing that we can all take advantage of. I think the other thing to keep in mind in something like that is, coming back to that Amazon example, there are a lot of companies that people worry about Amazon taking over their business model. And some of them will be taken over and some may not be. And what a diversified strategy allows you to do is to control for that pool of winners and losers and to understand that they may not all disappear. And so with a diversified collection of positions, you can place some emphasis on those you think less likely and completely eliminate those you think are more likely to be Amazon. The one thing that strikes me as we're all talking about this is we're talking about how to take smart risk. And maybe some people are good at predicting the market, in which case they can have a beta portfolio that's something different than one. But that's not how I think any of us win, right? It comes from taking smart risk based on the insights of our analysts. And that gets back to the fundamental research. Active management returns can be cyclical. The three of you have delivered strong returns and attractive information ratios, but active manager industry returns have generally disappointed since the financial crisis. In 2017, active management has seen a bit of a resurgence. 58% of large cap managers have outperformed year to date. Do you think this is sustainable? I think you're right. I think it does go in cycles, but I think the period when right now it should be sustainable and it goes back to why and how did we get here? The market valuation has started off low. It's now a bit above normal. And so it was all about beta. It's less about beta now. It's more about alpha. And that's exactly how we fit in. We've also gone through a period of historically low interest rates and there are many people out there searching for yield. And over the last few years, what we've seen is a big price premium on stable earnings. And active managers in general have had underweights to many of those industries and stocks. And we are now, I would say, in a more normal environment of economic growth where there is finally a prospect that rates can go higher. And that's, I think, going to become a tailwind for active management. Are there any obvious valuation anomalies today? Yes. As Rolf mentioned earlier, the bond proxies. What are bond proxies? Bond proxies are sectors such as REITs, real estate investment trusts, consumer staples, and all these companies and stocks that are behaving like bonds in the recent years. Because of low interest rate environment and lack of conviction on the economy, investors were chasing low volatility, they're chasing yield, they're chasing high dividend stocks, which is understandable. But 
This kind of risk aversion behavior drove the relative valuation of REITs and consumer staples of the world to an unsustainable level. Take staples as an example. We believe people are missing both cyclical and secular challenges, such as lack of pricing power, lower barrier of entry, and shifting consumer tastes. The taste of U.S. consumers has changed a lot and become a lot more diversified. People prefer natural, healthy, organic, and local produced products. In addition, one of the consumer staple sector's biggest customers is Walmart. Given the pressure Walmart is getting from Amazon, from Audi, from Lidl's of the world, Walmart is putting more pressure on its suppliers and also accelerating private label penetration. Both are very bad news for the consumer staple stocks. What's interesting, Susan, as I listen to you say that, it's almost as if the market has bid up these stocks because they're supposedly defensive, and nothing's, I guess, ever really defensive if it's overpriced. But in addition, maybe they're not as defensive as people really think, which comes back to our fundamental research, right? That's right. Where do you find the value today? I think financials are very interesting. My positive view on the sector is not just a rates call. Since the global financial crisis, legal and compliance costs for the top six banks have more than doubled. We believe the proposed regulatory relief is likely to enhance both growth and profits. Besides cheap valuation, the key driver for the sector today is capital return to shareholders at around only 30% payout ratio, with plenty of excess capital. The dividend growth potential is significant. The top 20 banks will return around 120 billion dollars over the next year. Take Citigroup as an example, which is only trading at one-time tangible book ratio. Besides returning 19 billion dollars to shareholders over the next 12 months, they lay out a vision at their annual day a few weeks ago to give back additional. 60 billion dollars cumulatively between 2018 and 2020, which is about almost one third of its market cap today. That looks like a great opportunity for us. Okay, now we're going to just quickly move into a couple rapid fire questions and then wrap up. I thought it'd be interesting to do this. So, Ralph, you know, you talk about the fact that REI strategies have lower tracking error. You didn't say this, but I'll say it: tracking error is roughly 75 to 125 basis points versus the benchmark. Question I would ask, and I think a lot of our listeners are probably asking: Is it even worth the risk of being active? If you can find active managers who can consistently outperform, and you feel have a fundamental advantage, and I think active managers in general are always something worth having. And I think in a world that we live in right now, where rates are very low, and we continue to see them remaining relatively low in historical terms, you think about what our long-term capital market assumptions are. We're forecasting U.S. large-cap equities to. Have a six and a quarter percent return longer term. So when you put seventy-five to one hundred and twenty-five basis points of incremental alpha in context in that low return environment, that's significant. And so again, seventy-five to one hundred on top of a six and a quarter return is meaningful. But I think longer term and more structurally, anytime you can introduce a lower tracking error strategy, you gain efficiency. Lower tracking error strategies, by their risk-controlled nature. Tend to have more alpha per unit of risk taken, and so what that allows an investor to do, especially one who has a limited risk budget, is to use those lower tracking error strategies to get you more incremental return 
in a construct where you really have to keep a close eye on volatility. So I think in any circumstance, lower tracking error strategies make sense. But also in the world that we live in today of low rates and low market returns, it makes even more sense. How do you manage risk in down markets? I would say two things. One goes back to the whole point of this conversation of beta one, which is in a down market, clients may not thank us, but what we want clients to be happy with is if the market's down 10 and we're down eight, that 200 basis points of alpha that we generate is coming from risk that we're taking that we think our analysts have insight into and we're putting into the portfolio. So one is it comes down to taking the right risks. The second thing that I would say and Susan gave a good example of this earlier with consumer staples, is there are certain sectors where they're going to do better if the market goes down. And where we can add value is if the market perceives that consumer staples are defensive, but they're actually not, we will fall into a trap by using that to control risk to the downside. What's a lot better is if it's defensive, we need it to really be defensive. And that gets informed by our fundamental research. And that could be utilities, it could be telecom, it could be cable systems, it could even be Google. But it has to actually be defensive and not overpriced because that's how you control risk in a down market. Every down cycle is different. But in general, we want to avoid companies that have a high leverage ratio, low quality management team, or lack of pricing power. Since we all have to be fully invested in our market environment. So as we enter into later part of the business cycle, when economy slows down, we want to tilt the portfolio towards growth at reasonable price type of stocks because they can provide both upside optionality and downside protection. In down markets, risk control is really important. What you tend to find is, especially after a sustained period of equity returns, In sharply down markets, your normal expected correlation between assets that right now is quite low actually becomes very high. And so the risks you thought you had become more pronounced because everything is sort of converging at the same time. And so when the markets shift from being up to down, risk management needs to kick in another level. You should avoid some of the stocks that Susan referenced, but you also have to understand that stocks that normally don't group with each other tend to behave like each other. And then diversification becomes a very important concept. And then going to Susan's point earlier about consumer staples, if that's being used by the market in a passive index as a defensive, but our research is telling us for all the reasons that Susan, you said, it's not actually defensive. That's the exact wrong place for us to build a portfolio to control that risk. Does a manager have to have high active share to outperform? For a manager to outperform, they need to pick the right stocks. What scale you pick those names is irrelevant. What you have to do is be able to rank stocks and be able to determine what's attractive from not. Higher active share managers, if you have a great stock picker, can add a lot of value. But at the same time, high active share doesn't necessarily mean outperformance because when you're concentrating excessively, you may end up with unintended risks that could overwhelm any stock selection decisions you have. But in general, you want to find managers who you think can find attractive securities, and you want to find managers who can properly risk weight those names. And if they happen to have low active share, but their risk is concentrated in where they can add value, that's a winning combination. If you have a manager with high active share who's very good at picking stocks and can also control risk, that's fine too. It all depends, again, on the nature of where you find your insights. 
it's almost about hitting many singles instead of going always for the home run, is what you're saying. Yes. Thank you for joining us on Insights. My pleasure. It was fun. Thanks for your time. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. If you have any feedback to provide, please submit feedback on our website, recorded on August 10th, 2017. The company or stock names mentioned in this podcast are not to be interpreted as a recommendation to buy or sell. The use of the above companies is in no way an endorsement for J.P. Morgan Asset Management Investment Management Services. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks— The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chasing Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586-K or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 2011-20355-E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080.
AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated. And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.